you know, it's funny you should mention that, which is just to, to backtrack when you talked about, you know, like this realization, like, oh, you know, I'm going to die. That realization has never been a problem for me, but I do have a distinct memory of being at my friend's funeral. He got murdered here in the States. Uh, I went to his funeral when I was 25. And I distinctly remember them bringing the coffin past on his way out of the church. And I thought, that's going to be me one day. I thought that was pretty fucked. But then when my son was born, I thought, you could kill me now. Yeah. You know, I'd be all right with it. But I don't want to go because I want to be around for him. But you could mm. kill me now and I'd accept it. Welcome to episode three of the Untapped Potential podcast with today's guest, Keir Wernham Flat. Before we start today's conversation, I want to draw your attention to the Practitioner Needs Analysis Coaching Program. The conversations on my research have shown clearly that 160 highly successful practitioners supporting some of the world's greatest athletes have on one level achieved massive things within high-performance sports and academia. Yet on a much more personal level, many are quietly suffering to maintain the perception of being successful and happy. This is the inconvenient truth sitting just under the surface within our high-performance environments. The cost of this truth ranges from divorce, absent parent, physical or mental illness, all of which contribute to the limiting the performance impact we all strive so hard to achieve. The human element has been forgotten, with many top practitioners now finding ways to leave our beloved industry. My research process has spawned the services I now provide to support performance practitioners. Athletes have a vast array of options within their support network to help them thrive, optimize, and activate their full expression. But very little is currently aimed at offering this unique support for performance practitioners. This is where the Practitioner Needs Analysis Coaching Program fills that gap. The Practitioner Needs Analysis allows you to identify what qualities are most important for you to show up in your role, career, and life in your fullest expression. It provides an analysis that highlights the components of your life, giving you clarity what is blocking you, how it's blocking you, and what you need to do to release those blocks. This guides you to tailor your goals and actions away from potential burnout, divorce or illness, and instead towards one where you thrive as a practitioner and in your personal life. To find out more about the group and one-to-one options Men Behind Sport offers, visit www.menbehindsport.com or email me at richard at menbehindsport.com. Now to today's guests and anyone who knows Keir will know that he has some very strong perspectives with regards to performance sport which is why I wanted to bring his voice to this podcast. Here has a vast amount of experience as a strength and conditioning coach across many elite environments, most notably in professional rugby. Now, this is not why I've asked Kier to come and talk on this podcast. In this episode, we dive into the non-technical aspects of performance. We discuss some of Kier's struggles in his career, how he's navigated his struggles, and what he sees as the next steps we need to take as practitioners to begin to evolve our environments into one's that begin to utilize our full potential. I'm excited to bring you this conversation because you're going to see a side of Keir that maybe you don't always see if you follow him on social media. If you enjoy this episode, please leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. And by doing this, you'll actively help in spreading this content to the practitioners that need it. So without delaying any more, here's a conversation with Keir Wenham flat Welcome to this episode and welcome, Keir. Thank you so much for, for being open to chat through on this podcast. Pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Had a good one last time. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of really excited to have you back because of of that conversation. Like, really, mm-hmm. it's um that was last year, I think now. And um, yeah, just some so love to dive into some of that and uh, what you offer on obviously through social media, but you impact so many coaches. What I think you do so well is you you speak so authentically, and you do it in your way. Now, I'm sure it rubs for some people out the wrong way, but I think what's underneath that is an authentic message and that's what i see anyway and mm-hmm. um and so I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into this and like away from all the technical elements but looking at looking at the person sort of yourself and the, the non-technical elements behind what it is to be a practitioner and a coach and um so i guess the first you take a step back a little bit i mean every, mm. most people know who you are but just just your inner drivers like the first question is what what were your inner drivers to get into a career of sp- of being pro sport uh being rejected as an athlete <laughs> right okay okay yeah i would have been an athlete if i could have been right yeah right. that's so i've got like a naturally i would say defiant streak okay. which was you know 
yeah, I mean, look at me. You know, I'm not I'm not a good athlete. Never, not fast, not big, not strong, not brave, not skillful. You know, all that kind of stuff. And probably, yeah, I tell everyone that I never really worked hard until I was 25. Um, and I I'm many things, but I don't lack self awareness. And yeah, it was obvious by the time I was like 15, 16, never going to make it. And at the time, loving rugby as much as I did, if you offered me the chance to do rugby for a living in some capacity, I would have taken it. So coaching was the next best thing. Mm -hmm. And it had, once the writing had been on the wall of, you know, I'm not going to make it there's a natural tendency when you're a teenage male to think, well, if I just get bigger and stronger, you know, I'm going to make it. <laughs> and, you know, I realized that the, the, the training or training people for a living as a coach kind of brought together those elements, which is you get to do rugby all day long. It's not a real job. Um, it is an academic discipline or, or an intellectual discipline and, you know, enjoy training. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was the reason. So common uh yeah well the conversation had so many coaches have got into it through that that way yeah. um how do you think how do you think that affected your career obviously your career was so interesting about your journey your career has gone in such a a, a wonderful direction or multiple directions mm. which we're going to touch on later but uh, how do you think that affected your early career in the sense of that drive to break into support you know like, I, the word what i remember you saying was like i'm afraid of a failed athlete and I've, I've heard that so commonly but do you think that that skewed how did that affect you like did that affect you positively negatively like on both probably um you know i i'm sure having gone the route that i went you probably have more of an inferior inferiority complex and a chip on your shoulder than if you're a 10 year pro and somebody hands you a job to transition out of a playing career. Mm. Um, but you know, there, there's advantages to that, which is I never really got handed a job and, you know, look at me, you know, I've not been brought in because oh, fucking hell, that guy's big. Like the boy, you know, he's going to get immediate buy-in. Like I am not walking buy-in, you know. And, you know, I'm not a remarkable athlete and stuff like that. So I would say I I think, you know, a lot of people talk about like Nepo babies, nepotism babies. The more that gets given to you, the less you're forced to engage with reality and get an honest assessment of who you are, how good you are, or that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. That was not an issue for me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that, um, and so along that journey, and I suppose break, you know, not, you said, you explained this a few times in different podcasts. Mm. And where was your, your lowest point in your career? Cause I think that's from where I, where I am, that's, mm. that has been quite a pivotal in your journey anyway, specifically like you've, you seem I know you have. You're like, you've you, you said mentioned it self awareness. You have got a mm. great deal of self awareness, and you've responded rather than trying to bash the door down. They're the same thing over and over again. But what was your lowest point in your strength and conditioning career? I've had a bunch of them, but I mean, when I started at Wasps, this is like 2010, 2010, yeah, 2010. So by no means was I crushing it in. 08, 09, early 2010. But I was making, you know, I was gradually making more money as a commercial personal trainer, building out my diary, like all that kind of stuff. And it was a big, at the time, pay cut to go from that, you know, probably like 25,000 pounds, whatever. Maybe I make 25K as a personal trainer that year. And then basically to go down to Wasps to work for free. London's a lot more expensive than, than Northampton. Mm. That's a stressor. And it's a bigger stressor, self-imposed, admittedly, that there's nothing waiting for you at the end of the internship. So the, the risk is not only have I shot myself in the foot financially and walked away from 
friends, family, whatever. Not that those things have been massive things keeping me in. That's a whole nother conversation. But basically you're like, well, I might be risking all this for nothing. Mm-hmm. And more then than now, but still too much, is like, what what will people think of me when I fail? Right. And, you know, I have a distinct memory of, so there, there was a bunch of shit, like, I remember when I was at Wasps. Now, they won everything. In the early 2000s, they won everything. Um, but if you worked in the academy at Wasps, you were a second-class citizen. Like literally, you you were not even allowed to walk in the first team gym if you if you were with the academy. And I arrived there in July, and I had not had like a face to face, like honest conversation with the head strength and conditioning coach by Christmas. So I'm like, I want to work here. So I went up to him at the Christmas party and I was like, I've been working in your department basically for the last five or six months. I emailed you twice in the last two years to ask for an internship. Anyway, I got an internship. I'm with the Academy now. And he said, oh, I know who you are. And that's one of those things that stuck with me. I will never do that as a boss. Mm. Anyway, a few months after that, like I've got no money coming in been living above a pub, you know, working like three part-time jobs still not making enough money and I had a colleague a school friend actually good friend of mine and she worked in television at the BBC I was qualified as a sports masseur then and she's like right you know I've got an office full of people she did me a big favor I've got an office full of people they're all going to pay x um come and do massages for everyone and then you can get some money in that way and because I had no money I had to carry this fucking massage table from Acton to white city on the tube carry it all up there and i got there and they were like oh we need to cancel so i think i i basically netted about 30 quid and i did cry that day (laughs) but what can you do yeah i've had you know i've had other tough times you know i spent a lot of time spending five six months on the road in argentina by myself Right, right you know all that kind of stuff that resonates to me in china you know just yeah. in the middle of nowhere which i look back now as, as fond memories but at the time like hard hard work oh, the exo survivors group <laughs> <laughs> counseling group um, um go back to the, i want to go back to that but before we move on to later, later experiences I, I think what you just highlighted there about the the, the senior the lead the the or the figure front Mm. of not recognizing who's in the team and i wonder oh, no, he like, recognized he just didn't care right okay okay yeah and where do you think that and not to pick out this person in general because i've heard this story quite often and i mm. think i guess relating it to well, what i've heard it, it, like there's a fear around approaching the figure front there's mm. this sense of taking whatever the figure front says as, as well i need to do that rather than question there's a fear mm. of reprisal there's a fear of um, I mean, Callum Walsh has been on, the, on this show and he was talking about the, like this, um, oh, what do you call it? Uh, the, the self-preservation, like mm. whether people in charge are, 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 have this self-preservation or, or, or most of the department has got this self-preservation. So which which leads to insular thinking, which leads to defending our, our ways and unable to kind of have an open conversation. I suppose with that that lead not pairing, did you did you notice because something I'm interested about belonging, building belonging, building connection to a team? Did you notice that? Like, how did that play out with the whole department, like say the academy department, or just to get a bit more context? Because I think some people don't recognise it. So, just from your perspective, there, there was no belonging. Right. Right. Yeah, there was no belonging. You know. Um, now we were we were separated. I mean, wasps had no money. You know, even despite the success, there was the main building. And then mm-hmm. we used to have a porter cabin for all the academy staff. But, you know, things like that guy emailing my boss to say, oh, you left out, you know, two or three boxes in the gym after your session. Like right. just fucking petty shit like that. Like, right. you know, just things like that. There, there was no belonging, mm-hmm. you know, 
that head left to another job. Never mm. spoken to him since. Mm. My boss, I spoke to two days ago. I haven't right. worked for him for 10 years. Yeah, right, you know, right. that's 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 the belonging. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, it's it's one of those things which is not that it's anywhere near this level, but you know, they talk about, you know, abusive parents. Right. You either perpetuate the cycle or break the cycle. Yeah. And definitely, you know, I made a, a promise to myself when I manage staff, which is, you know, I day one, I'm gonna greet every intern, I'm gonna shake their hand, get get to know them, you know, I'm probably buy them a coffee, stuff like that. Mm. You know, all that kind of stuff. And literally mm. last week, you know, I went down to, to Tampa and stayed with a former intern of, of mine at his house with my son, you know. So I'm I'm happy in a way that happened to me mm. that I can demonstrate once I'm in that situation how it should be done. Mm. Yeah. 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 Um that's a really good example. And I think again, leading to actually connecting with Callum's conversation that we had, his and this is a question I would love to ask you now. His measure of success is he had to think about it, but his measure of success was like, is he still in contact with ex-colleagues? Is he still, you know, is there a relationship built? His success was based on relationship now and rather than mm. accolades. And and so I kind of ask you that question. What is success to you now? Exactly the same. Exactly the same. I mean, it's self-serving because obviously, yeah. You know, I've never won shit as a strength coach, but, you know, things like that, like that guy that I stayed with last weekend, he invited me to his wedding earlier this year. Um, in May, mm-hmm. I had a kid who I trained at Wasps when he was 16, 17. I haven't trained him in 10 years. And he came out to stay with me when I was in Tokyo and trained him. And this year he was getting ready for World Cup selection. He said, Oh, can you can you help me get ready? And I've you know, I haven't trained anyone in three years. I haven't worked in rugby in six. Hmm. And he still, you know, picked me out. And it's obviously a, a function of the relationship more than anything else. So but right. to to get requests like that is very humbling. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think speaks volume to that, like you said, the relationship and hmm. because um yeah, just uh, so many gauge success based on the objective measures, which obviously they're 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 a part of it. You know, mm. awards or athletes winning something, or but a, a, a phrase I've heard so often, or in paraphrases, I've supported athletes to reach Olympic success or championship success, and I've waited for the emotional rush to hit. I thought, but it hasn't come. I thought this is why we do what we do, and it's just leaving many coaches or star practitioners kind of on this spiral of like, oh. Why am I doing this if this is not giving me this sense of fulfillment or joy or whatever it is they're looking for? And I, I think relationships get pushed to the back burner because it's not measurable. Well, it's not the biggest wins of my career. Yeah, it was relief. That was all I felt was relief. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> but for security of your job. No, not even that. I, I never cared about that. You right. know, it was probably like I said. You know, people, people everyone's a star of their own movie. So you think, fuck, you know, everyone's watching me. They're waiting for me to fail. Mm -hmm. And especially, you know, for example, I left Sydney Roosters and a year and a half later, we put 40 points on the Six Nations champions to get to the semifinals of the World Cup. And I remember sitting in the change rooms after and I was just like, fuck, it was a relief. Mm -hmm. I was happy for about five minutes and then we got back to work. Yeah, right. Where do you think that relief and that pressure to keep, and again, this is a proverb statement, chasing the thing, chasing the next thing, the next achievement. Like where, where do you think, have you seen that in the coaches in the strength coach network? And where do you think that comes from just generally? Um, You know, I think, I think it's a common thing to feel but i think the reasons or the manifestations of it are different mm-hmm. um i you know probably because you know everyone's values are different everyone's choices are different but you know i don't think a significant portion of the the coaching population probably have my appetite for risk right. and dropping everything moving across the world you know starting again you know that kind of shit um so i think 
it, it is common um but you know i think fundament fundamentally i think relief comes from you think you're going to lose something and then you don't and that can be status money mm -hmm. connection you know all that kind of stuff it just made me think one thing you said was around um i'm linking back to roosters and yeah one of the you talked about around threat and what stood out to me from what we spoke about last time was that there was an element where you felt trapped in that job because you didn't want to fail kind of like touching on what you just said the mm. status that job gave you the money mm. and you were close to your home and then you were there for a short period of time but then you offered the head of speed strength and power of the roosters and two weeks right, two, right. two three weeks right yeah and I think there was another, you didn't even think it. You said, yes, jumped on it straight away yeah. without, without thinking about the what actually that meant. What did that mean? What was the reality of that versus the, you know, what, were you aiming for, were you looking at just the title or what other things were you thinking about when you did take that, you know, or if you can expand on that anymore? Yeah, same thing again, which is, you know, what what are people going to think of you? Because I think it's you, you can be very, very cynical, but there's a book called The Status Game. Right. It's all just status. Yeah. Everything is status games. Some people use money yeah. as a proxy for status. Cause guess what? The richer you are, the more attractive women you get to pick from. That's a fact. It's job title, yeah. it's achievement, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, for sure, if you have this chip on your shoulder where you've had low self-esteem your whole life, mm -hmm. you've been rejected as an athlete, mm -hmm. it took you two years to work for free, mm -hmm. the head strength coach at Wasps doesn't know, you know, knows your name, doesn't care to speak to you for the first six months. Mm -hmm. And then three and a half years later, you're at a higher level job at a higher status club than him. That's one of those. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that guy's never even looked me up since. Mm -hmm. Like in my, you know, in the narrative that he tells up, he's like, they're, they're all watching. This is going to fucking show them. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, would, knowing what I know now, how it was, would you, would I still make that deal or have an idyllic life as the under 20s coach? and stay in that job for the next 10 years and not have any of the things that I had in the last 10 years, mm -hmm. I'd still make that bet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a four. Mm. Yeah. I think what you said earlier, actually, something about risk, like not many have the same level of tolerance for risk for you. I, I guess how I see it, and from the conversation, the conversation we had last time, like yeah. it seems that you're just clearer. I think you're clear of what you do, what, what you're aiming for and what you're not happy to put up with. And, I mean, in a way, like you've, you've got a clear idea of what sacrifice you are willing to make and for how long you're willing to make that. Because if, if I'm correct, like you left that, you did some form of calculation on your own and, and at Roosters and think this is not, this is not going anywhere for me. Well, it was when I, it was when I caught myself doing okay. the sums right. and I was like, well, this is a bad sign. Right. The way, what you just phrased, actually, it was phrased to me by David Joyce in a job interview, which is why is it whenever you don't get your way, you leave? <laughs> Which I don't think was very fair. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, and, you know, going back to low self-esteem as well, when you enter that job, there was um, sports psychs that put everyone through this battery of tests and mm -hmm. you sky really high on, on um, high drive to self-improve mm -hmm. and just self-awareness. Opposite ends. Right, yeah. yeah. Where and I say this because I, this is one thing that I'm hearing about so much low self esteem that affected me greatly, mm -hmm. uh, like in the like to the point where when I was at the EIS, I, I, I've given this example before. Like I couldn't, I, I found it so hard to give my coaching rationale. Like I just, what if I say the wrong thing? I'm going to look stupid. But here's I, the thing, right? At that point, I would have cut my dick off to have your job. I, if you said you and me could trade places, I'd be like, give me it. That's the thing. I never. I don't think I ever told you that, but yeah, at the time I was like, "Fucking hell, this guy's crushing it." EIS, Harlequins, like all this kind of stuff. I would have swapped. Either the reality of it is so different, mm -hmm. isn't it? Imagine the perception, mm -hmm. the perception yeah. of what you see. Of course, versus the you reality. see the highlight reel, you know. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, and I, 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 you know, I wonder. You're the one that kind of first said at the beginning before we we recorded. 
the idea of the achievement feedback loop and it's so potent and I think it's so insidious mm. that this high drive, you know, I kind of, I'll quote you, having a high drive to self-improve that's fueled by rock bottom self-esteem can take you very far in your career because you're coupling a sense of inferiority with a relentless pursuit of achievement. And I hear that, I've heard that so much. One, it was for me as well, my own experience, but two, it's this constant, it's, just, it's so common to hear that. And I wonder like, where do you, what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on that? Like, you know, um, from the coaches you've you've kind of mentored or led in the Strength Coach Network to the coaches you've worked with at universities and you know all around. Like, what do you what have you noticed with that? You like rainbows. Don't complain when you get wet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, it's I am not putting myself in this category, but there's a new. Um, biography coming out about um elon musk same guy that it was uh his name's walter isaacson he also did the steve jobs biography and he's you know obviously doing the the press junkets and stuff like like that right now mm -hmm. and he was on the lex freeman podcast and he, he did say you know it's one of these things that you see that uh all these great people have their demons mm -hmm. and that's the fuel mm -hmm. but there's a cost to having that fuel yeah. And, you know, I, I think it, it, there's, there's a trade-off, but you know, the exact words that he used in the podcast is this guy is addicted to drama. He is allergic to contentment, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And there's a spectrum. There are some people that are just mm, very content, very happy, not chasing any kind of external achievement or goals. And then there's the Elon Musks of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a psychological, emotional, social price to be paid the further you go this way. And there's an economic and there's a status price to be paid as you go this way. Mm. And where where you sit on that is going to be a product of your um, upbringing, your experiences, and your personal values. Mm -hmm. So kind of, again, like on your, like from now where, where I see now and like you seem to, I think what's, what stands out about you, about all, everything you do is that you lead with an authentic message. You're leading with what you see as a truth, mm -hmm. which shows to me that you are, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but you seem very grounded in yourself now, like your, your self-esteem, you've seems like you've really worked on that. And what things have worked for you to build your self-esteem? Having a kid. Right. Yeah. Basically, having a kid, getting married. Right. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, there's... If you see the movie enough times, you know how the movie ends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you get everything that you ask for professionally, I, I wrote it down. By the age of 30, I'm going to be a head strength coach in the premiership. And at 28, I got that job at the Roosters. Mm -hmm. At 29, I was at the World Cup. And I turned 30 when we played New Zealand at Wembley. Still miserable. Okay, let's go to Japan. Still miserable. Okay, let's go to America. Mm -hmm. You know, I think three times is enough to realize, oh, this is probably not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that and then probably got painted into a corner a little bit with not seeing my son for a year during covid as a result of splitting from his mother yeah it just happened that he was in japan when covid hit they shut the borders for a year didn't see him for you know 11 months basically yeah. and i was probably forced to accept the reality that i can continue on the path that i'm going and it's one of these things about my career, which is if you, any success I achieved, I expected it. It was never a question of if I would make it, it was when, when am I going to make it? So I was like, right, I can continue on this path and I'll probably get to the NFL eventually mm -hmm. at the expense of being a good parent, or mm -hmm. I can walk away and be a good parent. And 
financially it probably made sense months ago before i did um for family reasons it made sense to go months before i did but honestly even at that point in 20 uh, 2020 what will people think of me when i leave coaching i said i was going to do this people are going to say that i failed hmm. and i think it just you know it comes down to those that would judge me for that i don't care what they think of me mm-hmm. and the people that matter would not judge me for that so what does it matter you know it's just you know mm. you you can you can bleep out the word but taking lsd <laughs> yeah right my green card you know take you know taking acid and stuff like that is yeah i i remember distinctly coming to the realization that me is just a story that i tell myself right right yeah Right. I, so I'm in uh, charge of that story. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm with you on that. You know, I think that's the the potent use of changing states. Now, there are many mm-hmm. different ways of doing that. And, you know, there, there are, there, I think there is wise to get support within that kind of area. You know, <laughs> yeah. you look in that in my experience anyway, but um, I think the, you know, the story we're told, the story we're mm-hmm. told, we need to be married by this age. We need to get this type of job. We need to earn this type of money. We need to work, live in this type of house. I think, you, you know, for me as well, that has been such a loud wake up call. Like we are in charge of our own story of how we want to be mm-hmm. and yeah. how we want to live. Um, you know, my favorite quote about that, where you talk about states. Right. So there's, you know, I'm, I'm not a religious person, but right. there's a book by Sam Harris. I don't know if you read it. It's called uh, Waking Up. It's called. I've heard of it. I've not read it. Spirituality in the Absence of Religion. And what he talks about, which is. When you're an atheist or you're a scientifically minded person, you can fall into the trap of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, which is religion has nothing to offer the world. Right. And when you look at what unites all of the great religions of the world as transcendence. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the effectively what Buddhists would call the recognition that the self is an illusion. Yeah. And it talks about how, you know, prayer meditation religious observance fasting these are all ways to change your psychological state to get to the to that um realization and he said you know with enough practice prayer and meditation is like being given the the ability to look through the keyhole into a secret garden Mm -hmm. he said if you take psychedelics it's like being thrown over the wall (laughs) whether you like it or not yeah exactly you're going to (laughs) realize Yeah, I, I, for me personally, I, I, a spiritual faith has been massive since losing my mum. Like, and it wasn't wasn't a choice. Seeing my parents die, or my my mum, like my both my dad and mum, but my, for whatever reason, my mum at that time, I was more maybe aware of it. Like, shit, I'm gonna die one day. What does that mean? Mm. And not that I've got any answers, but like from but but anyway, transcendence. Kind of, you know, do you? Do you practice meditation or any way? What practice oh, no. do you? No, <laughs> to to uh, my mind is too active. So I mean, the the closest I come is is jujitsu, just because okay, it, right, right. you you're not able to think about anything else. If you yeah. if you think about something else, you're going to get strangled. So that's that's as close as I come. You know, it's funny you should mention that, which is just to to backtrack when you talked about you know like this realization, like oh, you know, I'm going to die that realization has never been a problem for me but i do have a distinct memory of being at my friend's funeral he got murdered here in the states uh, i went to his funeral when i was 25 and i distinctly remember them bringing the coffin past on his way out of the church and i thought that's gonna be me one day i thought that was pretty fucked. but then when my son was born i thought you could kill me now yeah you know I'd be all right with it, but I don't want to go because I want to be around for him, but you can mm-hmm. kill me now and I'd accept it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On well, How do you deal with the grief of that? Um, I say that because uh, from what I'm looking at, you know, I, I've, I've spoken to a lot of psychologists and, and psychotherapists as well. And one, my own journey of that, my own personal mm-hmm. treatment of that, but two, with regards to what I'm doing here at Mind Sport and just to make sure I'm one, I'm staying in, the, in my tracks so you know and to just get that perspective and you know from what i see and what i've heard is that men in general of course this is through the lens of sport i see this but i think men in general like are just not either taught or not equipped or don't haven't haven't been guided in a way to truly embrace the expansive emotions that we feel and so that's my quite one of my question is like how did you 
how do you deal with grief? How do you deal with grief? Right. It's a bit of a fight trap. Hmm. Because women will generally, oh, it sucks that men aren't in, you know, in touch with their feelings. They need to communicate better. They need to be more in touch with their feelings. And then the second you show any kind of vulnerability or in touch with your feelings, you're a pussy. Hmm. Women generally want to be protected mm-hmm. and you know the the like archetype of the protector and the provider is not this guy that's sitting around thinking about his feelings and oh you know how do i feel about this mm. they again the stereotype the you know the archetype which is they don't feel it because they're not bothered by it and they're too busy providing and protecting for it to be an issue mm. yeah so you don't you get on with it mm. In my experience, I think that's why losing my mum was so massive for me. I I'd done all that. I buried all that when my dad died when I was sixteen. And I remember, you know, I remember being told literally by someone, "Big boys don't cry. You got to think of good times. You know, you got you got to pick yourself up. You got to carry on." And and I bought into that totally. And I'm, the elements where you, I I, I kind of agree with you in a sense of life has to continue. Life does continue. Mm. Life will continue when I die. And I have, I had so much repressed anger so much like from my childhood but also from that moment like i just had nothing which then began to surface and my when i was 20 and just got me in a whole lot of of trouble Mm -hmm. and so my lived experience from learning how to feel my emotions not to wallow in it and when i mean by wallow it not to um to be in it when i feel them and allow them to pass and i'm so i'm grateful for my wife now who 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 is very open to Mm -hmm. That. And so anyway, my, my lived experience is that the the freedom that I have got from being able to do that has blown me away. Mm-hmm. Like to, to decharge or to, what's the word? To diffuse the anger because the, the, the emotion has been able to pass through. And, and I, uh, you know, but yeah, whereas pre-2014, well, no, pre-2010, and part that like, I was, I was very angry, like, mm-hmm. uh, you never know it oh richie's so nice he's smiling this mask was on until some buttons were pushed and then that would be it and they like they got me into a whole lot of trouble and i i wonder um again in in bringing back to sporting environments i wonder how these so much of that repression and again this is just my perspective from what i'm hearing but like the fear of coming you know the idea of saying no i think we touched on it the idea of saying no or the idea of saying standing what someone believes in and within the environment that the work environment there's so much fear of reprisal fear of coming across as weak fear of across as coming across as yeah like a pussy i suppose which i, I think from what i've heard massive in professional football um that's not the only sport but i think football mm-hmm. is particularly dark but i think that that repressed male archetype is seems to me anyway be be sort of running its current is running through lots of sport as well and it mm. yeah I, I, I don't know that's just my perspective on it and um oh, i i agree i agree it's uh i'm still working on it mm. <laughs> yeah i'm still I, working on it i think someone someone i mean again looking to, to sport someone who's who you know i've become friends with actually i'm grateful uh craig white mm. and um very successful guy yeah very and then his his other his i guess his passion is member men without masks and mm. then kind of the he's had a lot of rugby ex-rugby players ex, like rugby coaches coming into him to unstick a lot of that and i think there's one of the one of the goals of this podcast and one of the goals of men behind sport is to bring awareness that there is a different way to be and it is a work in progress it for mm. me it's a work in progress still but i think the you know um i'm talking about self-awareness like well what's showing up in my life how am i reacting to things versus how am i kind of can i respond to this in a different way and and i know that mm. i'm a better father and a better partner better husband and a better friend and a bit just a general better human when i am allowing myself to feel things and there are times of course i still, I still get lost in my stuff but um but that's where, say, coming back to psychedelics, breath work, meditation, mm. certain sports that kind of get me out, exactly how you describe, get me out of head. Like I know it as flow, amazing work at Flow Genome Project, which I'll, again, I'll, I'll put all the, mm. everything we mentioned, I'll put it down there. Like, a, like the, the purposeful practice of changing state. Now, mm. there's so many different triggers to that. 
but like action sports or, or I guess martial arts, like whereas you know jujitsu, high element of risk, and which kind of requires you to focus. Kind of what you say, but I think there's so much value in in learning to change our state. And it, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny you mentioned your uh, your wife. You know, that's you know for me, I, it sounds bad, but you know, she's probably one of the first partners I've had that I've admired. Because right. I think as well, you know, there's like this male archetype where maybe not everyone, maybe just me, you know, it was a flaw, but, you know, being transactional with women yeah. and objectifying women a little bit. But, you know, what I admire most about my wife is that she chose to be happy. She just thought, oh, you know, I wasn't happy. So I decided to be happy. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And, you know, just... I think she's she's walked away from a number of of jobs because she just like well this is not making me happy and she mm. just walked away and, and chose to be happy. Mm. I think that was when you know when I made the decision that I wanted to be married to her was oh you can you can admire <laughs> the person that you're with yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I I would I would echo that for my wife you know I think what you always sounds like I've never spoken to a meta but you know just a, just that says to me a very strong woman to know what she wants in this we are so different you know i'm named after the founder of the labor party so you know Keir hardy Keir starmer's obviously the he's named after the same guy um you know left-leaning all this kind of stuff mm -hmm. and she is a republican libertarian gun nut <laughs> you know from uh from california but yeah that's i think when we tell people, you know, oh, we're married to one another, it's like, or well, we actually agree on all the stuff that matters. To, to me and her, that's like superficial shit. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, yeah, like, yeah. I, again, my, um, when I was saying about, you know, uh, my emotions and freeing myself, like, not one moment is that easy. Even now, with my wife, who is very, she's a, she's a yoga teacher. She's, She's kind of super like that chooses to be happy, chooses mm. to be, just exudes it. It's still a massive challenge to mm. open up in those kind of ways. And I think yeah. it's a, it's a learned skill. That's what I guess coming with that down to it's a learned skill rather than, you know, when to do it, when not to do it, how to do it kind of, you know, what's, what's the right way for me to do it. And, um, but kind of your one thing that stands out from what you just said, and, and this links to a few other coaches that I've spoken to who are actually successful in sport, not just successful, I mean successful in the sense of happiness, mm. is they got a solid, strong relationship there, whether it's a, a wife or partner, whatever, because it anchors them into real, real life. And I, I, you know, in particular, say, for example, in sport, the ones I've spoken to, one, the wife doesn't care what they do. Yes, they've got an interest in how the job goes well and that they're happy, but they don't care about, you know, they don't care you work in professional sport. It doesn't get me going. You know, it's not, that's not what I'm drawn to. And two, just it's this reality check that when they do get home, well, okay, you've, you've done this, right. Focus on family time. Like if they've got mm. kids or there's, they make a, a, a conscious, in fact, leaning back to the flow genome project, kind of the idea of just baking in each week, this purposeful date nights. It's easy to, you know, it's easy to I'm say. going on a date on Sunday. <laughs> there you go. Right. The importance of that, I think, the importance of making sure yeah. it happens because you could easily say it, but time just drifts away. Mm. Um, coming back to something else you said in our last conversation, and I think it stood out to me so much is you talked about, um, you know, what you said about the Sydney Roosters where you just accepted the job and you didn't think about the, the, the consequences of that, I suppose. What mm. you, you mentioned last time, which I'd love you to expand on because it really resonated with me is the idea of the four P's, mm -hmm. um, you know, looking at was it pay, personal life, career progression, and sense of purpose mm -hmm. kind of, which I think you do so well, you know, speaking authentically, like how, where did you come up with, like, how did you come up with that? And like how painful experience, Richard. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. yeah. Just, you know, I think if you Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. I, um, I think, you know, it's one of these things where I get, I guess it's like a non-falsifiable thing. Well, mm -hmm. I feel like if you, if you look at those things there, you know, there are things that are must have nice to have, 
you know extra on top kind of things to to be a person so i, I forget how the 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 pyramid is but obviously it's like you have the the security needs then you have the you know like physical economic needs and then you have like the self-actualization at the top and it was just basically you know coming up with that was just like having learned from my mistakes having had conversations with you know interns of mine assistants of mine that went on to leave and all this kind of stuff and speaking to members on the site which is if you don't have a criteria or a process that you pass opportunities through Mm. you're you know at the mercy of chance which is whether you're going to take it or not whether it works out or not so you do have to try and have some kind of filter to be like okay this is probably a good opportunity this is probably a bad opportunity and so on and sydney roosters for example massive mistake on my part because you know economically yeah it was all right uh career progression big check personal life sucked sense of purpose sucked. Mm. that's a two out of four so mm. you know four out of four stay until you die get fired three leave for four two actively be looking one slap yourself or zero you know and yeah hindsight 2020 it's like should should i have taken that job no but it is what it is Mm. i think that offers a lot so much to to you know again i hear so many coaches in a job that just not happy and they want to they want to leave like because moving into what you do now like you're and you, you tell me if i'm you know or i have labor on this but you're yeah. you you coach coaches particularly because it's trained coaches who are looking to branch out away from sport or set up their own business it's not necessarily branch out but it's like yeah. it, you know if you if you look at those four p's right yeah pay personal progression and purpose right the uh career progression the state of the field is such that there's this huge oversubscription of coaches relative to jobs. Mm-hmm. If you assume that, you know, you have, everyone has an equal shot, you're going to miss more times than you, than you hit. Not really under your control. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, in terms of the sense of purpose, I think that comes from picking the right job. The ability to pick the right job comes from or your your ability to pick the right job is enhanced by economic options. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, if you love to coach, cool. If you had a million bucks in the bank and you, you know, for example, made a hundred grand a year from investments, you can go do what you want. I used to work with a guy at Wasps. He went to the first Gulf War, he came out, he started a defense company with his friends from the army. And he he said, I'm embarrassed to tell you the number that we sold that company for. And he was an academy coach at Wasps because he loved rugby. <laughs> so that sense of purpose comes from the money. And the personal life basically comes from setting the boundary in your day job, which is to say, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to walk out at this time and blah, 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 blah. Hmm. And you're probably a lot more ready willing and able to set those boundaries and say no i'm not going to be around i'm going to come in at this time if you have an economic cushion yeah right so i think so much of it comes down to money money gives you the freedom to say no it gives you the option to be more choosy it lets you take more risks it lets you be more ambitious and of those uh four it's the most under your control so if you look at how people get um like pay raises in coaching have you ever arrived at a situation professionally where that people say these hierarchies don't exist they do head coach assistant second assistant third assistant fourth assistant whatever have you ever been in a situation where they said fucking hell this fourth assistant's really really good and then they bumped him above the second and the third in terms of pay never so it's just a function of who's the one who's the two who's the three who's the four you're never going to earn more than that person above you Mm-hmm. what dictates your ability to get that job well either you've left and got promoted into that job which we said the odds are not on your side because there's 10 coaches for every job or somebody else left and you got bumped up just as you know a battlefield promotion which means that you're on somebody else's right. timetable rather than your own mm-hmm. but if i can teach you to go out and make a thousand bucks in 10 weeks which is that's the you know the, the value proposition of the course mm-hmm. you're going to make 
five grand in the next year that otherwise wasn't coming to you. And then maybe the next year it's 10, 15, 20 and so on. Before you know it, you're, you're creating those opportunities for yourself and you're becoming independent. Yes. Yeah. That's the idea. Okay. And to go into that. Like, how do you, how do, who do you know? Are you, are you having mainly strength coaches or, or practitioners from sport come to see you or who, who do you, who do you work with? Right now it's, it's strength coaches. It's, it's called strength coach money moves. Um, just because I think there's, there's a degree of credibility and authenticity like you said which is yeah. i've been in that situation i know the constraints i know you know i've kind of been there done it i can relate to people taking that course and um i think you know that is at least part of the appeal for people which is mm. you know i've been where they've been yeah yeah um i love yeah i really love those four pieces for me purpose i see it's like slightly different in the sense of for me purpose is not my job I used to think it was. I yeah. used to think I am a strength and conditioning coach and I need to work with blah, 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 whatever, the best. Yeah. You know, and next, and then the next day, I've got to go a bit, one more, one more. But now, for, like, for me, it's where I aim to live my life. And like my what I do now at Men by Sport is, is a way to fulfill my purpose rather than it's my purpose. And I guess more, maybe more of a, I think, I think money is crucial. And I think what money does offer, you know, I, I see you talk about, well, you know, seem for some reason, coaches seem to, have a low value in themselves financially for what money gives you and kind of what you just to reiterate what you said like the free, it gives you freedom it's freedom mm. to choose you know and i think that's so when it's all going back to boundaries when would you again giving sort of coaches some, something to take away practitioners to take away when would you um saying about boundaries saying no what you're happy to do what you're unhappy to do when would you start what would you say to someone who's, who's just starting a job you know, in professional football or in professional rugby, like how would you, how would you defend your boundaries? How would you set your boundaries? You don't, you don't. Well, you can. There's two times you can do it. When you could, you know, this is, I basically call it like, I think I forget the name I call it in the course, but it's like, basically you have this like breakaway, which is how much do you spend in a month to live? Right. Once that number matches what you make off your own back, you could walk away tomorrow and not feel a thing. You might you might have that hit of status, but it's like yeah. you've given yourself an indefinite runway to be like, okay, you know, I'm going to wait two, three, four, five years until the next gig comes around or I'm going to go make one for myself. Mm-hmm. If you're in that position and you're, you, you've decided that, no, I'm not going to do this, then you can say that, no, I'm going to be fine. Mm. The other option is to be, you know, the the lunatic in the fight that doesn't care if they get killed yeah so you know what fuck it i don't care yeah yeah i've been both okay yeah um and then like looking at non-technical skills because i mean this is what i mean this is kind of what you're talking about now to me anyway is giving so it's non-technical obviously to do a sport but you're giving people the tools to create more, more options in their life and i suppose what what technical, non-technical, sorry, what what do you think practitioners need to work on away from technical, up, you know, whether it's SNC or physio or whatever, like what do you think a practitioner should be working on on themselves, self-awareness-wise or kind of in, however you see it? Um, you know, I'll, I'll pump up Brett Bartholomew's tires communication. Yeah, right. right. Because... Even if you, you know, distill it down to, you know, the most self-serving and the most, you know, pursuing your own interests, unless you live in North Korea, everything that someone's going to do for you comes as a result of you persuading them to do it for you. It's in their interests on balance to mm-hmm. give you this thing, to do this thing for you. Mm-hmm. And if you are, you know, a good communicator, you're you're boosting your uh, your chances of, of getting what it is you want from life i think it's like you know how like you talk about in training where you have the most potential and you have the technical mastery i think there's like if you if you offer value to people to the marketplace all that kind of stuff that's your potential your ability to communicate and get that across to people and to get them to take decisions that are in your mutual benefit that's your ability to tap into it Mm -hmm. and i think there are there's both but generally people are not strong or effective communicators or deliberate in how they communicate with people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then taking a, I completely agree. And I think 
again, coming we said it, like either just fear of reprisal, fear of standing up to, to fear of conflict ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming back to, you know, that self-preservation kind of rather than I really another area that I found fascinating is just indigenous cultures. I lo- I've loved reading about them, a whole host of different ones. And in particular, uh, recently, kind of Owen Eastwood, I heard talk about kind of the, the two different forms of leadership from the Maori. So there's the hero leadership. I'm here to save you. I'm the head of department. Follow me. Like I'm, I've got, I'm going to, I'm going to look what I'm going to do here. I'm going to make us create a massive impact, all this kind of stuff. Or there's the guardian. <laughs> right, right. There you go. Or there's the guardian leadership. So the guardian mm-hmm. leadership is, well, the understanding that, well, there's been all this history before I came into this job. There can be history after I leave this job. So I'm, I'm basically taking something on and passing something on. And so not to the, just... uh, the wartime peacetime general. Okay. Right. In in the military talk about you have wartime generals, you have right. peacetime generals. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And and so what what do you think, you know, you this is a big question, I know, but what do you think needs to change in sport? Culture, maybe, whatever it is, to get more out of or allow practitioners to step more into their potential. If anything, it's tough because if if you if you read like Nassim Taleb, he'll talk about the you know the Lindy effect, which is the longer something's been around, the longer it's going to be around. The longer something's been around, the more it works, because volatility is a function of time. The longer something's around, the more bad shit's going to happen. The more time there is for bad ideas to get filtered out and and the good stuff to get doubled down on. If you look at institutionalized sport or sorry, organized sport, it's a blink of the eye in human history, mm-hmm. warfare, construction, commerce, politics, you know, all this stuff. These are millennia old organized sport is 200 years old for football, soccer. It's 25 years old in rugby, you know, so we're still at the stage where there are bad ideas being uh, washed out. Another thing to realize, or what we need to realize, is that we need to treat... There needs to be a a distinction between professional sport and organized sport, because it's like, my belief is the more things you aim at, the more likely you are to miss. Professional sports organizations exist to make money. Yes. That's it. Yes. Anything that is not that probably is going to be to win or to build community. And the mistake that they made in Japan was they tried to be all things to all men, in my experience. Yeah. Then what needs to happen is all decision making needs to be passed through the filter of whatever it is, whatever the primary objective is, which means that. You can't hire your best friend. You can't, you know, do this, do that. There needs to be objective criteria about, did, did you advance as closer towards the goal? Did you achieve, you know, the measure of success? Is this good? Is this bad? And then there you would get rid of a lot of the failings within the existing system. Another thing that needs to happen is there needs to be you know, getting on my soapbox again. No, go there for needs it. To be, there needs to be a decentralization of accreditation and education within uh, coaching. Um, I think about how to, to phrase this. Okay. Monopolies only serve those in possession of the monopoly. So, for example, you want to take the train from, are you in London? Uh, Brighton. Okay. You want to take the train from Brighton to London. Which which train line do you have to, to use? Yeah, Southern. Okay. What happens if you don't like their service or their pricing or their timetable? If you don't have a car, what's your other option? Cycling or walking. Yeah, go fuck yourself is the other option, <laughs> basically, right? So <laughs> because Southern don't have them that market feedback of this is unacceptable to the marketplace, we're going to take our money elsewhere, they are not motivated to do any uh, better. Mm. What's your alternative if you want to be a high-level strength coach in the UK and 
it is a fact that you require professional accreditation to coach. How many organizations can you go through? Hmm. One, the UKSCA. Yeah. Name me a major uh, upgrade or change that has occurred to the UK SCA accreditation process in the last 15 years. Hmm. Zero. If they operated without a monopoly and they were subject to market feedback like any other business, they would be removed from the gene pool. So they're, you know, the schools and the UK SCA are in bed with one another, you know, to set high standards. It's bullshit because if you could go out tomorrow and do an accelerated apprenticeship at a tenth of the cost of a degree and get the UKSCA stamp of approval, clubs could just go out and say degree or accelerated apprenticeship. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then there's another lie, which is why, why do you need a degree? It may have been true for, you know, our parents or mm-hmm. the generation before that, the a university degree was like unlocking uh future earnings and and opportunities Hmm. which may have been true you know all that time ago because you know two generations ago you were getting access to information that wasn't readily available a network of people that what you did not have access to and if you looked at the relationship between what does it cost you and what is your career earnings on the back end or what's your starting salary? There was a clear return on investment. Hmm. So, so I was listening to a clip this morning, which is if you're at a baseball game and you stand up, you're going to get, get a better view of the game. If everybody stands up, you're back to normal. Hmm. We're at that point now where everyone has a degree and it's not special. So as a result, look at the wages that strength coaches yeah. get. It, there is no economic argument to go get a degree to become a strength coach. The only reason people are doing it is so that you can say, oh, I have my degree. So that the UK SCA can say, oh, you do have your degree. Come come be a coach. It's an artificial uh, barrier that's been erected. And for that situation to be alleviated for strength coaches, which is, which is to say, you don't have to spend, you know, whatever a degree costs, it's not going to take three years. You don't have to be in your knees financially to do this. They would have to allow for an alternative pathway to be created and to relinquish monopoly over the field, mm-hmm. which they're never going to do because it's against their, their own interests for them to be the accreditor and the provider of education. They're playing both sides of the market. They're in they're in a hot nightclub selling expensive bottles of water. Yeah. Why would they give that up? Mm. You think there could be what what would yeah, do you think I guess trying to come up with a final thing, like something to really I've heard that it, the the term treat it like a tradesman, not a tradesman, but you know what I mean, like their the apprenticeship of a strength thing. I've heard that kind of recently. I don't know if it was you or whoever. But that that really to me, I think there's so much value in that to, to, to you know, because like you said, like, I, I, well, I've seen it and, you know, you get a degree, you get your master's, get a master's, I hate to stand out, probably PhD now, almost, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and I think that's coming away from the coach, isn't it? It's coming away from the, the, the data, the, the scientific mind is really important and the scientific lens to see things through. And, but it's the, again, what I'm hearing about and what I, what I used to dismiss about my own coaching was the people element how good I could, how well I could connect with people, coach or athletes, you know, the, the people in front of me, I dismissed that. I didn't value it because I wasn't good, but I wasn't as good as people I was working with regards to the science and the application of the, the kind of really the hard stuff. And that's my, that was my own shortcomings as a coach, but at the same time, I was really good at just getting buy-in and, and mm. kind of creating an environment. And I think the apprenticeship way is, is to have that as an option, I think is really important. Um, and with the option, then you can you can take on. You can study. You know, you can study. But I do think the, that to me rings really resonates a lot. I wonder. Yeah. Well, I, if there's anything else you want to say, kind of come to the end of it. I usually, I've really enjoyed sort of diving into some of these sticky sticky topics. But I've, um, I've talked enough, bro. I'm not sure I've got anything. Uh, <laughs> you know, even I think in general, I, I actually don't have a lot to offer to, uh, to coaching. I have people 
ask me to present and stuff like that and do work these days. And I, I actually say no, you know, mm-hmm. I don't consider myself a, a strength coach anymore. Mm. Yeah. So if, if there are any coaches or practitioners thinking like, well, you know, I like the idea of building a, a side income. So I've got some of some area of, of uh, freedom or alternative income. What, what's kind of, where can they find you? What do you do for that kind of thing? Callmecare.com. No, okay. no more rugby guy. No more. Uh, <laughs> all right. So call, callmecare.com. K-E-I-R. Okay. I'll put yep. all your all your links below. Like your yeah, cool. handles and all that stuff. And yeah, thank you so much, Keir, for being so open and honest. And, Pleasure. Thanks, man. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for listening to this episode. I just want to remind you, if you did enjoy it, if you're taking some really good takeaways from this podcast already, I want to encourage you and invite you to leave a review on Spotify or iTunes. Your action of doing that is directly going to help this podcast reach more practitioners that need it.